good to see you this morning. This past Thursday, we started out uh, as a congregation going through something called Hidden Within, the 40-day scripture memory project. And our first verse was from Proverbs 4.23 that encouraged us to guard our hearts. There's a new verse that starts tomorrow. It's a bit longer. It comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, and I want to encourage you before you get it to it tomorrow, don't let the length intimidate you. Keep persevering. It's so awesome to think that tomorrow when you jump into the hidden within, you can memorize a summary of the gospel. If you would like to join us uh, with Hidden Within, the 40-day scripture memory project, you can still download the app at the iTunes store called Hidden Within. It's very encouraging. Before we jump into the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Father, in your providence, you have allowed us to study your word this morning and specifically study about suffering and trials. And as we reflect on this past week's tragedy and the shooting in Oregon, we see suffering. Even locally in Chicago, we're coming out of the most violent month of the year. In fact, it has been the most violent September of the last decade. Lord, we look to you and you alone to bring comfort, mercy, peace, justice, and salvation. Father, you know who we are here, and you know that many of us here are going through our own trials and suffering right now. Please invade us with your grace to have your perspective on our trials and recognize your closeness and control. Keep us engaged this morning. Keep us awake this morning. Enable us to hear your word that will carry us through no matter no matter what the trial. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This past summer, I read a book by David Brooks called The Road to Character. He's a New York Times columnist. And he covers a variety of individuals and shows that through their lives and struggles, they have developed inner character. One of my favorite chapters is where he covers uh, a person whose name is Frances Perkins. Perhaps you've never heard of her before. Frances Perkins worked in the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt as the U.S. Secretary of Labor back in the 1930s and 40s. She was instrumental in advocating for the Social Security program, the abolition of child labor and minimum wage laws. She was a major force behind what is known as the New Deal which was a response to the Great Depression during the 1930s. But what has struck me the most about Frances Perkins is not her historical accomplishments, but the vast amount of suffering that she endured. At one time during her public life, she faced impeachment proceedings, and Roosevelt and most of her earlier supporters bailed on her. And as I was reading her story, I was impressed to how she stayed up under the pressure during the trial and didn't quit. And though she was eventually cleared, her reputation was tainted. But what makes me hurt for her the most was her marriage. Her husband cheated on her. 
but she stayed put. Her husband took their money to invest in some financial schemes, lost it all, but she stayed put. Her husband had a variety of mental issues that put him in asylums from time to time, and when he was at home, he was out of control, but she stayed put. She became pregnant, had a little boy. The boy died soon after birth. She stayed put. Eventually, she got pregnant again, and they had a girl. And her daughter had a mental illness that throughout her life, her daughter was in complete rebellion against her mom, Frances. And yet, Frances worked to financially care for her daughter. In fact, when she was 76 years old, she took a job so she could financially care for her daughter. And at the age of 85, she died alone in a hospital. And at her funeral, the pastor read her favorite verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be ye steadfast. Your translation probably says, stand firm. It's a very appropriate verse for her that she would stay put under the trials no matter what. And David Brooks writes about her in his book because it was her response to trials that led to the formation of godly character. And that is what every single person wants in here who's a follower of Jesus. You want a formation of godly character. If you are a follower of Christ, we would all agree that we want to be more like Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Well, we can get in the Word. We can pray, we can obey, we can fellowship, we can go to conferences, we can go to retreat. Those are ways that we grow. But one of the most significant ways that you will grow and become more and more like Jesus Christ is through suffering. God has ordained it that way. Whether we like it or not, as we endure through trials, as we endure through suffering, we become more and more like Jesus Christ. Billy Graham has put it this way. He says, mountaintops are for views and inspiration, but fruit is grown in the valleys. And as you look back on your life, even look back on some of your trials, you may say that some of the greatest moments of growth in your life came when you were suffering. Here's the thesis this morning. Problems are providential for your progress. Problems are providential for your progress. God in his providence has allowed trials in your life to create endurance and maturity in your faith. That's basically the way the book of James starts out. And it's the book we're going to start studying today for the next few months. If your first time here today, glad you're here. You picked a good day to come. We go through books of the Bible. We just finished an Old Testament book called 1 Samuel. This morning, we are starting the book of James. And rather than giving you a variety of background information before we look at the text, let's skip it, jump right in right away. Deal? Let's go. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, 
That's the way the book starts. James. Back then, they, it was typical to put the author's name first. We like to put it at the end. Back then, they put it at first. And most people and scholars agree that this James is the brother of Jesus. And interestingly enough, James did not believe in Jesus as Lord while he grew up with Jesus and during Jesus' public ministry. In fact, James thought his brother was little cray-cray. They thought he was a lunatic. And, and yet, as we follow James, we come to the book of Acts, and in Acts, James is praying along with the believers in the early church. And notice in James 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is no longer a lunatic, but Jesus is Lord. What changed? If he thought Jesus was a lunatic and now he's Lord, you're like, what's the deal? What, why'd you flip-flop like that? And, and I believe the reason why he changed was a little something called the resurrection. It would work for me. My brother, he's a lunatic. Said brother dies, is buried for three days, rises from the dead, never to die again. I have changed my position brother is Lord. And now we have James submitting and following the Lord Jesus Christ. But James was not only a follower of Christ, but he was also a leader in the early church at Jerusalem. You see, most of the early Christians, you know this, most of the early Christians were Jewish. They were Jewish believers in Jesus. And through a series of trials, many of the Jews, even Jews that believed in Jesus, um, were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. They were kind of kicked out of Jerusalem, and they were all over the place, kind of like refugees. And this explains why James says at the end of verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. You see, the 12 tribes would be an Old Testament reference that would describe Israel, remember? Made up of 12 tribes from the 12 sons of Jacob. And James applies that terminology to the true people of God in the church who believe in Jesus. And dispersion refers to many of these Jews who are Christians living outside of Israel. That's who James is. That's his audience. But here's the main reason he wrote the book. He wrote the book. There's a lot of reasons, but the, one of the main reasons why he wrote it is he's trying to encourage them to keep enduring in the midst of the trials. Stand firm. Be ye steadfast. And he just jumps right in. Look at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James doesn't narrow the suffering to one particular trial, but he branches out, notice, to include trials of various kinds. And there are a variety of trials that we all face. But for the original hearers, these trials of various kinds may have included poverty and oppression. 
And we get a hint of this in verse 9 and 11, through 11. Why don't you jump down to verse 9? Look at the, look at the hint of their trials. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This juxtaposition of the poor and the rich is a theme that we will see developed later on as the dispersed believers tended to be poor, as refugees often are, especially in this case, and were targets of oppression of the rich in their working conditions and life in general. But the day will come, well, this will be flipped, where the rich will fade away and then the poor will be exalted. And so James is encouraging these believers who are poor to endure in their trial. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. Various trials. If I go to you, you can tell me your trial. And there are various trials in here. Some of you are struggling with illness. Maybe you have difficulties at work or at school. Various trials, loneliness, depression, difficult children, difficult parents, infertility. Maybe someone in your family has died recently. We have various trials going on among us right now. And if you're not in a trial right now, you probably will be soon. It's what happens. We live in this world and we face various trials. And a trial for the believer is something that will test your faith. Look at it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Here it is, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith. Now, if you're in school, you probably don't like tests. And generally, tests work in a variety of ways, but they typically, uh, you can tell me whether you passed or whether you failed. Do not think of the test that way. Do not think, oh, is this a test to determine whether I'm a Christian or not? Am I going to pass the Christian test? And if I fail, am I not a Christian? Not that kind of test. The kind of testing that's going on here is more along the lines of refining or purifying your faith. You can think of it in terms of a purified water. Water. Someone sent me a diagram recently to show me all the stuff water goes through as it is being purified. I had no idea. I just turned on the tap and boom, there it goes. No idea that water goes through coagulation, sedimentation, filtration, and disinfection before you can drink it. It gets the junk out. So it is with trials. They purify your faith. Think in terms of gold and and fire. As gold is refined by fire to get rid of the impurities, so is your faith in the fiery trial of suffering. So you're being tested. You're being purified. you're You're being refined. But what's the point? You ever wonder, like, what's the point? So what? What is the results of this purification? This is what it's, here's the results. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, stickability. 
you're being tested to develop this steadfastness. One scholar has explained that the word has the idea of remaining under, remaining under a heavy load for a long time. For those of you who like to to work out, you can think about your muscle becomes strong as it faces resistance. So the Christian learns to remain faithful over the long haul only when they face difficulties. And that's the way that God has set it up. He is in the business of building your spiritual muscles over the long haul. He's working in his providence today to build you and making you strong so you can endure and persevere in your faith. And he has certainly done that in my life. He has brought trials to build my spiritual muscles. I was saved at 19. Some of you may be 19 years old. That's when I became a Christian, repented of my sins, put my faith in Jesus. And if I didn't get saved, I've said it many times before, I would be like the rapper Eminem. Without the rapping part, I would be very, very an angry man. I was very angry. And during my 20s, God said, we shall now break you of that. And one of the things that he did in my life, he, 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 and he brought my ailing grandmother into my life. And I spent most of my, my 20s caring for her because God was saying, you know what? I'm going to teach you how to treat women. You've treated women so poorly de- during your teen years, you don't know how to treat a woman. So this is what we're going to do. You're going to take care of your ailing grandma. You are going to get her food. You're going to get her vitamins. You're going to give her a bath. You're going to clean up after her. You're going to learn how to take care of a woman. One of the hardest times of my life. But what God was doing is getting ready for marriage. So I'm going to be married and now I have three daughters. He's building those spiritual muscles. Now, another way he's done it in my life is, I've, I've said it many times before, but I know some of you are new. I, I have six kids. When I tell people I have six kids, they go, you're crazy. What are you doing? How do you do that? And, and I should say, well, I've been working out. Because God just didn't say, here's six kids at once. That happened over time. And my first two were born about 13 months apart, which was torture. And as time went on, God is building these muscles in me so that when the six come along, right, he has already been working me out. So another way, check this out. I am here in Evanston uh, doing this ministry at Evanston Bible Fellowship. You, you know why I'm here? Because my last church closed. I don't want to be dramatic, but I was a failure, okay? I moved here from Santa Monica. God said, you know what, here, take this church. Let's close it. That, that's, that wasn't fun. But do you think there's future trials that await me in the ministry? Absolutely. But what he was doing in the past, he's working me out. He's developing steadfastness. And that's what he does with trials. That's what he does in your life. That's what he does in my life. He's building endurance and stickability so that we'll stay put and keep going. And you have to have this picture or you're going to get depressed and you're going to despair, and you're going to fall apart when trials come. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. It keeps going. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the main goal. You see it? 
You endure trials for your growth, maturity, and character. And James is saying, let steadfastness have its full effect. Let me interpret that. Stay put. Stay up under the load. Persevere. It's for your growth. It's for your character. When you're being pressed down, don't turn to an idol. When you're being crushed in a trial, don't look for relief in sin. Stay put. It's the hardest thing to do. We want to figure things out. We want to fix things. We want to get relief in sin. It's say, let steadfastness have its full effect. God is developing character in you and maturity in you. He's developing steadfastness so that you can go for the long haul. If you're in a difficult relationship, you're a difficult marriage, Stay put. God's working in you. Some of you are struggling financially. Don't turn to schemes or unethical dealings. Stay put. For those of you who are in school and you just started, ready to bail three, four weeks in, don't do it. Stay put. Difficult job. Persevere with the difficulties. God is developing this maturity in you. But here is the hard part of the sermon. It's going to be the hardest part. It's not automatic. Just because you have trials does not mean that you automatically will grow. Not the case. You could spend most of your time in your trial complaining. I see you complainers. You could spend most of the time in your trial griping. Any gripers out there? You can spend most of the time in your trial cussing. You know you cussers. Just cuss, cuss, cuss. Things are not going right. Cuss, cuss. And, and you know what you're doing? You are wasting your trial. And what I say to you is don't waste your trial. It's not automatic. If you're complaining and griping and cussing all through your trial, it is doing nothing. It's not having its full effect. And let me show you what's missing. This is how you grow in your trial. Did you catch it? Verse 2, look at the first words of verse 2. Count it all joy. Are you kidding me? Count it all joy. I'm not trying to tell you to be superficial. I'm not trying to get you to bop around with a big old smile on your face all the time. Not at all. Because the Bible is full of lament. The Bible is full of you being honest in your pain. In fact, what could be happened to you is pure evil. You could be persecuted for your faith. I'm not saying that what is happening to you, you should say, oh, that is so joyful. I'm so glad that's happening. No, no. You should count it joy for what God is producing in you. And what he is producing in you is steadfastness, endurance, stickability. He is maturing you. He's bringing you to a point of the completeness where he wants you. And as you're going through it, you're to count a joy. Romans says the same thing. Romans 5, verses 3 through 4. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And you can have joy, because what God is doing in your trial is he's producing endurance and character in your life. 
So when life is pressing you down, stay put. Don't bail to idols. Don't bail to sin. When life is pressing you down, say, I'm going to count it joy because God's doing something here. But here's what else you can do. Here's what else you can do. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. When you're going through life, you need wisdom, just in general. But when you're going through trials and hard times, you really need wisdom. You need wisdom for A, to understand that, okay, God, you're doing something here. Help me to see you in this trial. And B, you want to know what to do. You ever been in a trial and a hard time and and you don't know what to do? You're like, God, I really don't know what to do. And you ask him, God, I need wisdom how to navigate this trial. Please tell me what to do. And the Bible tells us that God will give it to you. He doesn't withhold it from you because of your various issues and faults, but he generously pours it out. But there is one condition. There are some people in here, you ask for wisdom, and he won't give it to you because there is one condition you have to meet. Look in verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know what the double-minded person is? The double-minded person says, you know what? God's really going to come through for me. But then again, I don't think so. And I've got to go find my own solution. Well, God's going to come through. No, he's not going to come through. Double-minded, like a wave, right? Tossed to and fro. God's going to come through. Nah, he's not going to come through. I've got to find my own solution. And and what we're told here is God is not going to give you wisdom when you're expressing what has been called the spiritual schizophrenia, where you're back and forth like a wave, where you're leaving your options open for another solution outside of God. Our church is about 60% single. A lot of you are single in here, and singleness can be a great time of your life where you can grow uh, but also, for some of you, not all of you, singleness is, it can be, it can be a challenge. Like marriage can be, have its own challenges, so, so can singleness. And, and some of you who are single, maybe single your whole life, that God has got you on that, that track, and you're trusting him, and you're totally going all out, and you, you just don't know. And then some of you who are single, you, you really want to get married, and you're trying to learn how to trust God in your singleness. And so I want to ask you, in your singleness... Are you trusting him, especially for those of you who want to get married, you're trusting him that you're going to wait until he brings that that person who loves Jesus along, or are you double-minded and keeping your options open? Yeah, I want that godly person, but if I can't find that person, I'll keep my options open, and perhaps I'll date someone who doesn't love Jesus. I just got to keep my options open. So are you back and forth? And so if you find yourself back and forth, let me do a play on words for the single people in here. Let the single person be single-minded and trusting the Lord with their singleness. Let's say it again. Let the single person be single-minded and trusting the Lord with their singleness. Where, through the trial, they're not going to waffle back and forth. They're going to say, Lord, I'm I'm totally on board 100% with you, and I'm going to trust you with my singleness. If I never get married, that's totally fine, but I'm not going to go in search of other options. That's what it means to be single-minded. And when we come to the Lord in prayer, no matter what the issue, no matter what the trial, we don't want to be waffling back and forth like a wave that is tossed to and fro on the sea. We want to come to the Lord in prayer and ask him for wisdom. And in your trial, I wonder how much have you prayed to the Lord and asked him for wisdom?
Prayer should be important all of our lives, but when trials hit, we should be praying like crazy. Remember the woman I mentioned at the beginning, Frances Perkins? Well, when she endured impeachment and the infidelity of her husband along with the unrequited love of her daughter, she stayed up under it and she would get away often to pray. She would go away on these little miniature retreats and she would just spend hours on her knees praying. In fact, she would pray so much that people need to come in, clean her room. And so they would come in with the mop and mop around her while she's on her knees praying. That's where we should be. God, give me your wisdom. God, I need perspective. I'm not quite seeing this trial rightly. I I need to know that you're a part of it. God, please give me wisdom. Let me see that and let me, just tell me what to do. It's not just a quick prayer. It's that that continuing with God in prayer, asking for wisdom, not double-minded, but single-minded, that he is your only option, that he is your only solution. These problems are providential for your progress. And in these trials, you want to stay put, you want to count it joy, and you want to pray for wisdom. And now let's bring it all together and close with our last verse. It is such a great verse. kind of brings it all together. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Something in this verse has really captured me. And I'm not talking about the the part of the crown of life, which is so significant. If we persevere in our faith, we will receive eternal life. You know, those who truly believe by faith alone will persevere and receive the crown of life. That's awesome. We'll talk about that more in James 2. But I want you to read this verse again, and I really want to highlight something that has struck me so much. Verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised, and here it is, to those who love him. If I'm reading this rightly, which I think I am, it is telling me love motivates endurance. Love motivates endurance. I, I feel like I need to take a little time out and I'll almost tell you this. Do you, do you understand that when you were born, we were all born into sin. When we say that, it means that we fell short of the glory of God. We did not keep his commandments perfectly. In fact, no one can go to heaven by being a good person. No one can go to heaven by, by just doing these right things because God is holy and we're not, okay? God sends his son Jesus to this earth, a historical reality. Sends his son Jesus because he wants to rescue humanity from his wrath, So Jesus lives a perfect life, keeps the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, and he's buried, and he rises again, proving that he conquered uh, death and and Satan uh, and sin, and his wrath is removed. And the good news is, those who put their faith in Jesus can have God's love, can have God's wrath off of them, can have his love, his grace and mercy, a relationship forever. Now, if you truly have believed... Your relationship with God is not a get-out-of-hell-free type card, right? It's not like, yeah, I'm here because I believe because I don't want to go to hell, and God, he's just a bonus, throw him in, but I just don't really want to go to hell. That's not a relationship with God. If you truly are a Christian, you love God. If you don't love Jesus, you're not going to heaven. 
That's the point. Jesus is the point. So he loves you and you love him. Now here's, here's the deal. As a Christian, your love for him and his love for you, this relationship you have, that is to motivate your endurance and perseverance. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you really uncomfortable here and I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you this scenario and I, 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 guys, men, uh, married men in here, I, I'm, I, I may be unveiling your thought process, but let, let's go ahead and do this, all right? Because I want to show you that love for the Lord should fuel your endurance. Okay. Consider the man in here who's in a difficult marriage. Okay. There's going to be rough patches for all marriages, all right? So, so consider the man who's in a difficult marriage, all right? Now, let's just say that he's being tempted to commit adultery. That's a temptation that Satan brings your way to commit adultery. Why will this man not commit adultery? What will be the main reason that he's going to stick it out and he's not going to cheat? Well, some people would say, hey, man, you don't want to commit adultery. Just think of all the bad consequences. If you commit adultery, that's going to mess up your kids probably for the rest of their life. Don't do that. And if you commit adultery, you're probably going to get divorced. And then you're going to go through all that financial messy stuff. And then, and then your reputation, people are going to say, oh, you're the cheater guy. You don't want to commit adultery. Think of all the consequences. And so the guy goes, man, those are logical consequences on why I should not commit adultery. That makes so much sense. But when the marriage is bad and temptation is great, logic is lost. People commit adultery all the time. It doesn't even make sense because logic is lost. Take another man. He's in a bad marriage. It's difficult. It's always a hard time living with his wife. It's just, oh, there's always fighting. Something's just not right. And Satan comes along. Hey, man, why don't you commit adultery? And so he's tempted. But here's his response. Internally, externally, he's like, you know what? I am not going to commit adultery because I love Jesus. I'm in a relationship with God. He doesn't want me to do that. He wants me to remain faithful, to persevere, to stick it out. And yeah, I'm tempted. I'm tempted. But I'm in a relationship with God. I love him. Now, do you see this? Love for God motivates endurance. Where the fear of the consequences, of earthly consequences can be lost. Hey, man, I'm in a relationship with God. There ain't no way I'm going to offend his holiness by cheating on my wife. Do you see that? Those who love God, there's this motivation, there's this endurance, and it's, it comes from, I, I love God. Stay put. Count it joy. Ask him for wisdom. And persevere because you love him. These problems are providential for your progress. God's design and all these trials for the way he set it up is for your growth and maturity. He loves you, and he's with you in these trials. He's not going to leave you, not going to forsake you. I'm about to tell you something that you've maybe never heard before. I've never even heard it before. Our church is going to do something to try to encourage one another to remain faithful in trials because God has been faithful to us. God has sustained us. Uh, we are going to do something called the James Story Project. This is, 
I've never heard of this before. And I didn't think of this. Someone on our staff told me about this. This is so cool. Now, listen to this. If you have a story of how God has brought you through a trial or how he's sustained you or been with you in your suffering, we want to pair you and your testimony. You can still be in the trial now. There could be no great conclusion to it, but God's been with you. We want to pair you with an artist at EBF who can interpret your journey creatively. And then in January, we're going to be talking about James 5, the same thing again, patience and steadfastness and suffering, and we're going to display these pieces here along with the testimonies to encourage you that God is faithful and he's with you no matter what. He's not going to bail on you in your trial. He's not going to leave you in your suffering. Back when we were living in Santa Monica, back in California, my child number one, in order, not in rank, um, was 11 months old. And he had croup cough. For those of you who've never had croup cough, basically your, your child turns into a seal. And they do not sleep. They're coughing. Their chest is doing weird things. So we call the doctor. And in California, they're like, take him outside, breathe the outside air. It's going to fix him. But for something about the, the weather during that time didn't work. They go, okay, bring him inside, turn on the hot shower, steam up the whole bathroom, take him in there to breathe the steam. Did not work. And they're like, all right, bring him to the hospital. So we took him to the hospital. And in the hospital, he just, he, he was just falling apart. So they had to get an IV in him. So we went to this small room with several doctors and nurses there. He's strapped down, and his head is right here, and I'm standing over him, and he's screaming because they are trying in vain to find his veins. And his veins, apparently, he has none. And they are searching and sticking and sticking and searching, and he's looking right up at me, and he's crying, he's screaming, and he, he's sweating, and it's as if his eyes are saying, Father, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And the reason why I'm allowing it to happen to him is for his good. He needs that. He needs that to get better. It's, it's a good thing. As, as miserable it is, it's a good thing. Okay, several months go by, have another kid, remember 13 and a half months apart, have a girl this time. And she's five months old. Man, what is it about breathing issues and respiratory problems in Southern California? But she's got some issue going on too. Same scenario. Take her outside. Didn't fix. Put her in the, in the bathroom. It's not working. And so bring her to the hospital. So I bring her in, children's area, and then I see it. It's the room of torture. And she needs to go in there. And I know what's going to happen. And you know what? I said, take her. They took her in. They shut the door. And I stayed out. And she was screaming and wailing. And I was such a lame dad. I had to actually apologize to her in the service, the first service. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I tell that story because of this reason. God does not leave the room. He does not leave you. He does not forsake you. He is with you. 
If you want any further proof that he's with you, Jesus came down into the mess we're in and suffered. And God knows what's going on in your trial. And he knows it's shaping you and forming you for your good, for his glory. He knows these problems, they're providential for your progress. Stay put. I know it's hard. Count it as joy. Cry out to him for wisdom. And persevere in his love. Let's pray. Lord, these are your words that have been spoken to your people and many are in trials right now. Let them know that you are faithful. You have not left and you will not leave. And I pray for my bitter brother or my bitter and resentful sister in here who's full of complaining, full of griping, maybe even full of cussing and cursing at you and the world. May you change their hearts to have your perspective on their trial from one of bitterness, from one of being jaded. Turn it around, make them full of joy so they don't waste their trials. We trust you, Father, that what you're doing in us is for our good. Whether at times we feel like it or not, you're still working out these sovereign movements in our life as we journey along until we're with you for our growth and our maturity. Help us to see it that way. In Jesus' name, amen.